Before we get to this episode of the Naffy More Right Rudder podcast, I'd like to take a moment to thank this episode's sponsor and Naffy sponsor, ICOM. From students to professional pilots and ground crew, ICOM has the right handheld, mobile, or panel mount VHF radio for you. Pilots choose ICOM for features such as Bluetooth, bright displays, and easy-to-use interfaces. For stress-free in-flight operations, choose ICOM. Add before flight. And if you're interested, uh, as we're gearing up for AirVenture, how can we believe that it's June already? Um, make sure that uh, you go visit our friends at ICOM at their booth at the show. I'm sure they'd appreciate it, and I'm sure they'd appreciate you uh, referencing the fact that you heard about them on our podcast. If you can't wait till AirVenture, then uh, make sure you visit their website at icomamerica.com. So as far as this episode is concerned, um, we are actually doing a throwback to last year's Air Venture for the NAFI Professional Development Center, and it's a uh, program that was created and presented by Gary Reeves, the guy in the pink shirt. And so his presentation is called Top 5 Mistakes Good Instructors Make When Teaching IFR. Now, Gary has over 8,300 hours, is an ATP, a master instructor, and was 2019 FAA National CFI of the Year. Good guy, my friend, and also very experienced instructor. I think you'll enjoy what he has to say as far as uh, what these mistakes might be. And while I'm at it and concerning mistakes, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, please do. And if you haven't left us a review, please do that too. Hopefully you're enjoying the materials. But uh, without further ado, top five mistakes good instructors make when teaching IFR. PilotSafety.org teaches free FAA safety classes all over the U.S. thanks to help from Avemco, the national sponsor of the FAA WINGS program. Most people know Gary is the top international expert in single pilot IFR using Autopilots, Avidyne, Foreflight, and Garmin Avionics. But to really understand the guy in the pink shirt, let's look at the numbers. Gary is a lead rep for the FAA safety team. He has over 8,300 hours, is an ATP, and a master flight, instrument, and multi-engine instructor. Of the 112,000 instructors in the U.S., Less than 800 have ever been named Master Instructor. Gary is one of only nine to have earned this designation from the great state of Texas. Gary has trained airlines, flight schools, and pilots from Alaska to Australia in over 50 
different aircraft types, including light jets, turboprops, and pistons. Gary was chosen to be the only national training provider for two huge companies, Avidyne and Genesis SDEC. Please welcome my friend, the guy in the pink shirt, the one and only 2019 FAA National Flight Instructor of the Year, Gary Reeves. Take fake love. I'm not proud. How y'all doing? Welcome to NAFI. That is a really good slide to take a picture of. The FAA and instructors use resources. DPEs use the Airman Certification Standards to check that a pilot's good enough to pass the IFR or I checkride. Who here has passed an instrument rating checkride? Then you are already good at instrument flying. I can prove it. How many of you that have passed an instrument checkride? can file an IFR flight plan, get a weather brief, put it in your GPS, fly a vectors to final approach if everything is normal. Then you're already good. This is the picture that I really want you to have. Let's go back. Being good, when is being good not good enough? when things aren't normal. How many of you can do all of that stuff when things are normal? How many of you can work your avionics, your autopilot, and your plane with three back-to-back -back ATC amendments told to go direct to a DME unpublished fix hold with smoke in the cockpit diverting to unforecast weather? See? So being good is passing the FAA checkride. That's good. Staying good is fatal. And that's why I'm so proud to be part of NAFI, because they don't let flight instructors just stay good. It's continuing growth. All right. So here's the things we're going to cover today. All of these are just my opinions, and I have really strong opinions if you've never heard me speak. So I'm going to say I never fly VFR. And there's always at least five good exceptions to when I would fly VFR. I'm going to say I would never hand fly anything. It's autopilot only. Well, there's at least 20 times when I would hand fly. So if I say I never, there's always exceptions. Okay? So the mistake, the number one mistake that IFR pilots make is flying VFR. You should never fly VFR if you have an instrument rating. Why? Well, that's how you pick up airspace violations. No kidding, 80% of FAA airspace violations are people with an instrument rating trying to fly VFR. If you were on an IFR flight plan, you're clear of the airspace. Happened to me. So about two years ago, I'm hired to do a three-day mastery course for a couple guys at 310 down in South Florida, and everything went wrong. Who are my instructors in the room? You ever had a client where it just was not working out? I show up, I do eight hours of ground, we go out to fly the second day, and the pedo heat and the stall heat doesn't work. I can't fly your airplane. Your plane's illegal. It's unairworthy. The stall warning horn is required. Well, they haven't used the POH checklist in 20 years because they're airplane owners. They just did the walk around. I'm like, we can't fly your plane. 
like, you, you got to get this fixed. Do you want to do ground school? No, we'll just fly tomorrow. Fine. So they get the stall warning horn fixed. I come back the next day, and it's actual IMC. It's overcast at 2,000 feet. He's hired me to teach him the new Garmin GTN. Anybody got a Garmin GTN? Really cool, really cool creatures. And I get in, and the navigation database is a year out of date. Okay, well, we can go fly an ILS, but that's not what you taught me for. And now he's upset, and I'm upset, and I'm three grand a day, and there are no refunds. Like, I'm sorry. And he's like, well, can't you teach me something? And I'm like, well, we can go to a local airport, and I think we can stay just VMC enough to do a practice GPS approach. But by the time I did the missed approach and went out to the hold, I was getting too close to the cloud, so we had to cancel it. I'm like, okay, we got to stay VMC because we can't use your GPS because your database is out. I'm like, let's return to Pompano Air Park, your little podunk non-towered thing you live at. And he goes, okay. And he goes, okay, well, can you show me the new visual approach? Never, ever use the visual approach on a GTN or the new Avidine 10.3. Visual approaches have no guaranteed obstacle clearance, no airspace clearance. There's nothing protected about them. They just line you straight up. I'm like, fine. So I'm cruising down, and I get to about here, and I'm going to go on this side of, you know, the airport, because that'll give me more room. And he goes, uh, no, you, you can't make left traffic for Pompano Air Airport. I'm like, I'm IFR. This is an IFR maneuver. A visual approach is an IFR maneuver. I'm not making traffic. He goes, no, you're not allowed to do that. You have to make right traffic at Pompano. I'm like, that's not a thing. I'm like, look, we're doing this. So I make the call on common traffic, and the airport manager comes on. You're not allowed to make left traffic. Dude, I, I'm IFR, and you're not in charge. But the students are now getting upset. You have to be here. I'm like, but there's airspace on that side. And they go, look, if you just stay on this side of that highway, you're clear of the airspace. And at that point, my cardinal mistake happened. I canceled IFR with ATC. Activated the visual approach and had to extend and loop and extend and loop to avoid other people in the pattern. And flew right through St. Pete Class Delta airspace three times with a 1200 transponder not talking to anybody. So when the FISDO called me and they said, well, we'd like to talk about your airspace violations. I'm like, yep, that was me. Well, who was flying the plane? I go, doesn't matter. I'm piloting command. I'm the instructor. This is my fault. He goes, well, who was manipulating the controls? I go, it doesn't matter. He goes, you sure you want this on your record? And I'm like, well, yeah, this was me. He's like, okay. And I'm like, all right, Gary R. at pilotsafety.org. And he stops. He goes, do you wear a pink shirt? I'm like, yep. And he goes, Last year, you gave out 10,000 wings credits. <laughs> yes, I did. Well, this will conclude our remedial training. And I'm like, thanks. That was 100% my fault. The worst thing about not flying IFR is you lose your skills. Anybody here ever take Spanish in high school? Go ahead. Speak it to Spanish. Yeah, everyone goes, una mas cerveza, por favor. That's, do you guys know that that's not even correct? Do you know una mas cerveza doesn't even grammatically, that's not a sentence? 
It, it, it doesn't translate. Let's try it again. Everybody repeat in por favor. Dos mas cervezas is the correct pronunciation. Why does your Spanish el sucko? Because you keep speaking English. If you get an instrument rating, every time you fly VFR, your IFR skills go away. I never fly VFR. That's why I'm the world's greatest at single pilot IFR using buttons. If I go from Decatur to Mineral Wells, where Genesis Autopilots are, it's a seven-minute flight. It takes me 33. I file an IFR flight plan. I get an IFR clearance on the ground. I take off. I go to the initial approach fix. I do the procedure turn. I do the full procedure. I land. I call and cancel. You know what that makes me? Really good at IFR. You never want to fly VFR because every time you do, you're going to lose those IFR skills. Now, if you go IFR in blue skies, does it count towards currency? No. I saw your question. I'll get them all at the end. No, but it keeps you good, right? So there's three ways to keep your IFR good. You either got to use it every time you fly or add new stuff, constantly review what you have, or use it every single time, right? Best way to get good at IFR, teach, right? How many of you are not instructors yet? I did, it, I did an instructor course 20 years ago until I found a real job. Careful what happens with that. Okay. The more you fly, the better you're going to be at it, right? So one of my favorite stories is I was flying in Arizona, and we were doing a hold, and a guy from Southern California wanders in, and he was assigned a hold, and he goes, well, we don't really do holds in California. And ATC's like, okay, would you like a vector back to California? <laughs> Why wasn't he good at holds? Because he never did them, right? All right, here's a bonus tip. Under no circumstances should you ever fly a VFR practice approach. It is careless, reckless behavior. It is super dangerous. This is where everybody gasps and goes, what? So here's Coolidge. So the wind is, what, 270 at 8 at Coolidge? Right? So the proper approach would be this one, right? Well, here's the problem. There's a guy going up the VOR8 squawking 1,200. He has a direct conflict for the guy making a base entry. He's setting himself up for midair. Practice approaches while squawking 1200 is not only dangerous, it's against regulations. And at which point, people go, that's not a thing. So somebody in the back always says, show me the law. Well, if you insist. Anybody ever read the aim? And everyone goes, but the aim is not law. Well, here's the problem. If you do something against the aim, and case law is decided the other way, guess what happens, right? So let's read AIM, Chapter 4, Section 3, Subsection 21. Various air traffic incidences, mid-air collisions, which have been fatal, and multiple near-air mid-collisions have indicated the necessity to achieve controlled operations. This is an FAA air traffic control policy. The AIM actually mentions an FAA policy 
which is a rule. They must provide separation. To do a practice request, it is a request that may be approved or denied by ATC. So if you've been an instructor like me and wandered out to a non-towered airport and gone up and down approaches while squawking 1200, you are actually violating an ATC policy and violating the same chapter. When would air traffic control not allow practice approaches? When you are a direct conflict for IFR aircraft. And everyone's like, well, yeah, but that's still not a law. Okay. Let's try this one. First of all, instructors get a picture of that. 4321 is the easy way to remember it. Let's do this. You want a reg? I can do a reg. VFR practice approaches without ATC permission directly interfere with IFR aircraft. You're directly increasing the chances of mid-air collision. How do I know? I flew a Premier jet like three times. One time I got held for 45 minutes because I could not do the approach through a 6,000 foot overcast. Why? Because local instructors were going up and down the approach and not talking to ATC. You want to know what a Premier jet burns an hour while we held for 45 minutes? If you're doing the practice approach, squawk in 1200, not only are you blocking IFR arrivals, you are stopping all IFR departures out of that airport. So it is a direct interference with other aircraft, which means that would be 9113, careless and reckless operation. You may not operate in an aircraft in a reckless manner so in do endanger the life or property of another, and that is what you are doing. Good picture. Remember, I told you I had weird opinions, right? This is straight from ATC. ATC, I've talked to 300 controllers all around the country, and they're all begging me to tell you, stop doing this. You are dangerous. You're setting yourself up for mid-airs. So how do you do practice approaches? Well, it's real simple. You just call the TRACON or the center first, and you say what? VFR request. What do you want? We want to do practice approaches at Coolidge. Okay, squawk 0231, own nav. You can do any approaches you want. You can maneuver in any way you want, but you've got a unique transponder code, and they can call you and move you out of the way and warn you about other traffic. So we want you to do more you talking and squawking, okay? Good picture. All right. So never do VFR practice approaches with what? Squawking 1200. Do more VFR practice approaches after asking center or TRACON for permission. Even at airports you think with no traffic at all. You really need to do this. Okay. Mistake number two, departing VFR or canceling IFR in the air. Why? So why do people depart VFR? Well, they were taught it's helpful to ATC and other pilots. It's faster to pick up your clearance in the air. What else? What else do you think? Why are good reasons to depart VFR? Okay. So, yeah, right? It's also the fastest way to kill me, my favorite instructor. I'm flying a Piper Saratoga into an airport in Pennsylvania. I was talked into doing something, somebody's instrument rating, something I don't normally do, but I'm happy to do this, kids. 
and he wasn't a kid. He was like 25, but kid to me. And it's overcast at 300 feet. We're using runway 24. The wind is 240 at 18 knots. New York Center says what every center in Tracon says at a common towered airport, a common trafficked airport. I don't see anybody in the pattern. Radar service is terminated. Clear for the approach. Switch to common traffic. Radar service terminated does not mean Squawk 1200. It means I can't warn you anymore because we're not talking to you. So we're flying the approach, and it's overcast at 300, and about 350 feet, I see a bright white light right in front of the plane. And I knock the student's hand off the plane, I disconnect the autopilot, I pull that Saratoga up as hard, as fast as I can, 70 degree climbing bank to the right, I feel a big bang and a bump, and I'm in an emergency climb. I've been in my first mid-air, yay. I get back up on top of the clouds, Called New York Center, Mayday, 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 Saratoga 121 Tango Foxtrot. I believe I've been in a midair. And she's like, what do you mean believe? And I'm like, I heard a bang. I felt a bump. I think we've been hit. And she goes, what do you need? And I'm like, I don't know. And she's like, you are cleared to maneuver any direction, any altitude in 10 miles. Tell me what you need. And I'm like, great. And we're just trying to see what's hanging off the plane. And 30 seconds later, New York Center, Bonanza, blah, 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 departed runway six. I'd like to pick up my IFR clearance. Is it legal at a non-towered airport in Class Gulf to take off with a 20-knot tailwind into a 300-foot overcast without even making a call on common traffic? Of course, that's 100% legal. Departing without your IFR clearance is a fatal mistake because you don't know who's coming in. You're setting yourself up for a mid-air collision. And I'm just sitting there going, eh. We didn't actually hit. We were so close. The bang, the audible bang and the bump was each other's wake turbulence. That's how close I came to dying. So the worst part about departing VFR is this. If you have an accident after you take off, we don't know you're missing. How many people, when they drive a car, wait until they're 10 miles away on the freeway before engaging your airbags and putting on a seatbelt? Don't depart VFR. What if you did depart and get stuck below a low cloud layer and you can't get your clearance? And no one knows if you crash, guys. So what's the exception? Well, I was teaching out of Bountiful. I called Salt Lake on the ground for my IFR clearance, and they said no. They don't do IFR clearances out of Bountiful at all because they'd have to set, shut down Salt Lake airport. So I take off, I call for it in the air, and they say, no. Maintain VFR, do the red barn transition. At which point, my hands go up in the air, I look at the other pilot, and I'm like, your controls, I'm out. I don't know how to fly VFR. I've already proved that. And I go, I don't even know what a red barn is. He goes, no problem. You just aim for a bright red barn over there, and you fly there. I'm like, you're it. <laughs> they wouldn't give me my clearance until I was out of the Bravo airspace because they couldn't maintain safe separation. So there are airports where they won't let you do it for safety, okay? Why do people cancel IFR in the air? Well, they were taught it's helpful. And ATC is kind of insistent sometimes. Y'all ever, like, do you want to cancel IFR in the air? Well, I mean, like, really, you could cancel now. Like, really? Well, I'm, well you sure you don't want to cancel now? Here's the problem. A 62,000-hour King Air pilot is flying his King Air into his home airport at night. He's 10 miles out, and ATC says, report the airport in sight, and he says, airport in sight. 
It's VMC. He's 10 miles out. And they say, would you like to cancel IFR in the air? And he goes, oh, yeah, absolutely. And they say, squawk 1200, good night. Here's the problem. The autopsy is proof he survived the impact. He bled to death slowly over two to three days while trapped in the wreckage. If you guys don't want to hang out in that for three days bleeding to death because nobody's looking for you, I would not cancel IFR in the air. You're disabling the safety system. It's not helpful to ATC. It's not helpful to other pilot. You're disengaging search and rescue. What's the exception? Anytime I'm at a non-towered airport with five guys in the pattern, I'm going to cancel IFR because I can't go straight in anyway. I'm going to have to break off and join the traffic pattern. And if there's a problem, they'd call for help, right? But otherwise, no. Mistake number three. How many people were taught the one, two, three rule for picking an alternate? That's just silly. So let's try this. Let's try the old rule one, two, three. I'm going from MSL into uh, Mitchell County. And if I go missed at Mitchell County after I'm already tired, after flying into known bad weather, then I should look for someplace safe. Okay, uh, so. I'm going to fly through this storm line, go miss there, and then divert? Does that make any sense at all? No. It did 20 years ago because we didn't have cockpit weather. How many people have weather in the cockpit? Ads, BXM, whatever. Okay, I got a better idea. Instead of flying into known bad weather and then going missed, when do most accidents happen? In the first 10 minutes, halfway during good weather, or after three hours in bad weather? When is workload highest? When is fatigue highest? And don't worry about fatigue, worry about decision fatigue. I got a better idea. Why don't you stop at a Charlie halfway on your destination? Your weather alternate, in my opinion, should always be halfway to your destination while you're still in good weather. Wouldn't that be better? True or false, everybody? This is the audience participation part. True or false? I haven't given you the question yet. Everybody that ever died going missed in bad weather would have lived if they stopped halfway while they were still in good weather. Now, Jesse, you got it. Okay, good. should file two alternates. One is the halfway weather decision alternate. The second one is the very closest airport. It's the very closest airport to your destination. Why? I fly about 250 hours a year all around the U.S. and some internationally. About twice a year, the airport I'm going to closes when I'm within 10 miles because somebody gears up on a runway. So the second alternate on your ICAO flight plan is just the nearest runway. And this was a flight track out of uh, going into Rochester. This was my flight plan. I got to right about there, and Rochester shows, ATIS goes, we're now closed. So I just divert to the nearest airport. But you need to plan for that. <coughs> Mistake number four, choosing the approach way too late. How do you know what approach to fly at your destination when the TRACON or center tells you? No. When you're close enough to hear the ATIS. Dude, no. When you get a weather brief before you file or take off, yes. 
you always plan and file to the initial approach fix of the procedure you want to shoot before you ever take off. And if you don't know what the weather is going to be when you get there, you didn't get the weather brief. I do this a lot. And I switch approaches at the end maybe once every three years. Other than that, I always get the approach I'm going to shoot. Let me show you what I mean. Anybody know what GIGO means? You put garbage in a good computer, you're going to get garbage out. So let's do this. Let's plan a GPS direct flight plan direct to the airport. That is always wrong. Like 90% of the time, you shouldn't be on a Victor Airway. There's exceptions. You should never file GPS direct to an airport because it doesn't make sense. Would you actually, how many people would fly to the center of the airport, overfly the center of the airport, and then go to the initial approach fix? And then begin the approach, and then go back to the airport you already flew over? How many people would do that? Nobody. You don't file to the airport because it does not make sense. You're not going to overfly the airport and then leave and fly a procedure. What you're going to do instead is file to the initial approach fix. So let me show you how I would plan a flight. Always do a departure if there's one arrival, or one available, rather. So I'm just going to go check the weather at Texarkana. And the METAR says 190 out of 9. The TAF and the MOS say it's going to be out of the southwest all day. So I'm going to go, okay, runway 22 is probably going to be in use. I'm going to procedure, approach, find the RNAV 22 and hit the map button, overlay it onto the map, and go, well, coming from the left, I'm going to start at Toyo. So I'm just going to grab the pink line and drag it up. Waypoints. Toyo. Now that makes sense. Then I'm going to go back and look for the departure out of Decatur. So I'm just going to hit procedure. The route advisor on ForeFlight is always garbage. It's not an advisor. It's a history of what other people have done. Most of the time, it's not efficient. They're legal, but it's not the best routing. Okay? So everyone seems to be on this CUSO arrival. Well, I don't want to fly the CUSO, and let me show you why. If I hit Procedure, Departure, and I look at the CUSO 1, which is an RNAV departure, it would take me past where I want to go. So the route advisor is giving me bad advice. I want to do the Garland and get out at Paris. If you all don't believe me about the route advisor, everyone in the room follow. You all got that note page, right? I want you to all file the following flight plan today. K-O-S-H, M-I-A, the Miami Vortac, to Appleton, direct at 3,000. If I can get everyone in this room to file that flight plan, guess what will show up on the route advisor at ForeFlight? <laughs> yeah, it's not an advisor, folks. That is an efficient, correct, safe flight plan. All right, bonus tip. Using Victor Airways. No. 90% of the time, nah. Air traffic controllers don't even want you on these things. Why? Because that's where everybody else is. If you fly Victor Airways a lot, you're going to get a lot of amended clearances because you're always in the way or catching up to somebody else. You just want to go departure or 
GPS direct to the initial approach fix or GPS direct to the beginning of an arrival and obviously route your way around MOAs. When are some times that you do want to use Victor Airways? Well, the tech routes in Southern and Northern California. If you're flying through busy Bravo airspace, a lot of the arrivals and departures are based on Victor Airways. But anybody here ever flown through Boston, Newark, or JFK airspace at a low altitude? It doesn't matter what you file. We're going to give you a Victor Airway, and we're going to change our mind every 30 seconds. Just keep up. They're so crowded, they don't have room for GPS direct. Or going in or out of the mountains are all good reasons. So if you're not familiar with what a tech route is, this is when the route advisor is actually effective. It says going from Long Beach to Chino, you're going to get the Coastal Pop of 13. I know you're going to get the Coastal Pop 13 because we've cleared it 914 times in the last 30 days. So the tech route is actually a published pre-done route in busy areas. So we're at Quebec, and that's the route we're going to get. Okay, And you can actually file the Coastal Pop of 13. All right, bonus tip. The four-flight route advisor. Everybody, what's the definition of the word advisor? A human being with more experience than you that acts like a mentor. There is nobody at four-flight with more experience than you looking at your flight plan. In fact, there's no human looking at your flight plan. It's just a history of what other people have filed. Here's the problem. One guy files a Victor Airway route. The next 300 people see it in the route advisor, which is just a history. They file that same route, and then everybody else does it. Right? That's not a thing. It's just a history of what the other lemmings are doing. The route advisor is a great tool, but it's not an advisor. It's a good place to look, but I wouldn't follow it. Right? Mistake number five, and this is the last one, just being good. Because, again, good only works when what? When everything is normal. So can a good pilot or instrument flight instructor plan a safe flight, everybody? Get a weather brief? Fly and approach in normal workload and conditions. Sure. What's normal? Well, it's different for everybody. Who's got more than 5,000 hours instrument experience? Your normal might be even a little light icing. Who's brand new at the instrument rating? Your normal might be an 800-foot overcast and light to occasional moderate turbulence with less than a 10-knot crosswind. Everybody's normal is different. The more experience you have, the more you would consider normal. But it's still just normal. How do you get good at being normal conditions? How do you get good at learning new avionics, your iPad, your ForeFlight, that kind of, your new autopilot. How can you get good at this stuff? You guys ready? Watch the free videos on the manufacturer's website. Who's got a Garmin? Garmin has a bunch of free videos that are great. Who's got the Avidine? A little more advanced. Tons of free videos. They're great. Garmin and Avidine both give out free iPad simulators. They are great at making you good, and I encourage all of you to play with them. And it's just trial and error, but better than practicing in a moving airplane. And working with a good local instructor. All of those will make you good. Doing this class and other wings program. This is the one quote from me that I want you guys to print on t-shirts. Single pilot IFR being good 
works most of the time, and then it doesn't. So if you are good, can you recover from a workload spike after three back-to-back ATC amendments and unforecast bad weather? How many of you, raise your hands, let's start out. Hold your hands up if you're good in normal conditions, and keep your hands up. All of you should. All right, keep your hands up if you can recover from a workload spike after three back-to-back ATC amendments and unforecast bad weather. And during that, go direct to and fly an unpublished DME fix hold on your avionics with smoke in the cockpit. Got lonely up here. So how do you go beyond good? How about you just ask 100 strangers who aren't instructors for their opinion? How about taking advice from a celebrity because they're popular? How about hiring the cheapest and absolute worst instructor? Do any of these sound like good ideas? Then exactly why are you asking questions on Facebook? I've been in the four-flight group where somebody asks a question and I answer it, and I get shouted down by 50 people who go, Gary's an idiot. I'm like, have you been talking to my wife? Is, is she, like, she's some of these fake. The problem with asking a question on four flight, Garmin, or Avidine Facebook groups is the people who are giving you the good answers get shouted down by the people who are giving you the wrong answers, and you have no way of knowing. How about just taking advice from a really popular YouTube star? This is actually celebrity advice. She actually said this. To be healthy, you should only eat purple food. Okay, wine, Red Bull, I can diet. Okay, I'm good. There are some really popular YouTube channels that have garbage advice. Okay, why? Because they're popular, doesn't make them qualified. Okay, so having a million followers means nothing if they don't have the expertise or the real-world experience. So how do you qualify a YouTube expert? Just ask two questions. Are you an instructor? Do you have to be a good instructor to produce good content? Absolutely not, by the way. I was at the, uh, the Saratoga Fly-In. I was their keynote. I'll speak at any convention, by the way. My speaking fees, I'm twelve grand a day. If it's an airplane thing, I'll come for free. And I'll waive the 12 grand. I'll come speak at your convention. I'm happy to do it. You just got to get on my calendar 18 months in advance. But I was keynote speaker at a Saratoga convention, and a guy in front of me is doing a skew T weather class. And I'm like, oh, are you an instructor? He goes, no, I'm a private pilot with 200 hours. You have an instrument rating? Yeah, I got one of those. I'm like, so why are you teaching this QT? Well, I got stuck in an embedded thunderstorm with my family. I'm never going to let that happen again. I've spent the last two years doing nothing but studying skew T charts, and this is why I'm going to teach the class. And I sat in the back of the class, and I learned a ton that I didn't know. So you don't have to be an instructor to produce good content. I've seen some instructor YouTubes that were not good either, right? But do they have real-world experience? That's what you're looking for. All right, how about hiring the wrong instructor? You want to hire an instructor to make you better than good? Ask them what training have you taken at a mastery level. And let's say, who here has installed a new something in their panel in the last two years? Before you go up with a local instructor, say, I'd like a two-hour ground lesson on the most common mistakes and how to use it quickly in an emergency. If they can't do that ground lesson, 
they're just good. They can't help you go beyond good. I'm not saying they're not good. They just can't go beyond that. How about the very worst possible instructor on the planet? How many of you, by show of hands, would hire somebody that has the exact same level of knowledge as you, has never experienced a workload spike, and doesn't know what to do with an emergency? How many of you would pay an instructor like that? So who's the worst instructor? Brian, no, uh, you. It's you. You can't ever go from good to mastery on your own because you don't even know what questions to ask. So being a good pilot and comfortable with your current skill level only guarantees you're not going to know what to do when things go really horribly wrong.